This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. This is 5x5. It's episode number 64 for Friday, April 20th, 2012, or 2012. I want to say thanks very much to our sponsors, FreshBooks.com, Hover.com, and OneMoreThing.com.au. That silence must mean you're there, John. I am here. Uh, The stream was behind, so. Oh, yeah. I'm assuming you got through with the intro. Yeah, it's done. Sounds perfect. Okay. Best intro I've ever done. That's good. All right, ready to go? Yeah, we're going. How are you, John? I'm doing fine. Good. Got a smattering of follow-up today. I'd love to hear it. First item is a throwback to two shows ago, or maybe one show ago, where I talked about PlayStation Network gift cards. Do you remember that? PlayStation Network gift cards that cost more on Amazon than they do uh, elsewhere. Than, than their face value. Yeah, so they, you get a $10 so it, gift card and uh, someone sent me a link and I put it in the show notes and it cost you like 16 bucks for a $10 card. And this was all <laughs> a way so you didn't have to enter your credit card number into the uh, Sony database. Right, privacy. Uh, it, yeah, because they've had security problems over there at PSN. So a couple of people told me that that gift card was some kind of scam. And so I just pulled it from the show notes just to prevent anyone from accidentally buying it. And you really, you shouldn't buy it for more than face value anyway. And many other people wrote in to tell me that you can find PSN gift cards and Xbox Live gift cards and stuff all over the place. So it's basically any place you can find an iTunes gift card, like grocery stores, drug stores, BJ's Wholesale, just everywhere for face value. Uh, they might only be $20 cards. Maybe they don't make $10 cards anymore. But uh, if anyone's out there trying to find a PlayStation Network gift card, that they can use to buy Journey for the PlayStation they just bought for the sole purpose of playing that game and they still don't want to give Sony their credit card number, you should be able to find PSN gift cards elsewhere. So I just wanted to share that information. And I hope nobody did follow that possible scam link. I mean, how big of a scam could it be? It's on, it's on Amazon, presumably. What, what makes it a scam? Do you, are you not getting what you paid for? Or is it a scam in that it is more than face value and that's the scam? That that might have been part of the scam, but also the idea was put forward that maybe these people won't actually deliver what they say they'll deliver and you'll give them money and then you'll have to resolve it through, you know, Amazon's third party seller resolution process. Like, hey, I spent this money and nothing ever came in the mail or what came wasn't what's advertised or you just want to avoid all that. So that's why I pulled the link because I figured better, better safe than sorry. I don't know if it was a scam link, but the mere suggestion that it could have been made me say, let's just pull it. So I did. But anyway, this, you can get these cards elsewhere. And and you should. Yeah. Or just enter your credit card. As many people pointed out, I mean, everyone's paranoid about their credit cards getting stolen. Credit, you're not liable for credit card losses, but my answer to the people who are telling me, oh, you know, if your credit cards get stolen, the credit card companies pay for it. Well, the two answers to that. First was that eventually we all pay for that. You know, oh, the credit card company pays for fraud, but they pay for it by distributing the cost among all their customers. So right. in a very diluted way, we all pay for it. And the second thing is, even if you don't have to pay any money, and even if the dilution of the fraud never affects you or it's like a penny a year or something it's still a hassle to go through oh, i gotta cancel that card and any site that has that card in it i gotta remember i gotta change it next time i order you know all that stuff so that's why i say if you're worried about that stuff just get the cards elsewhere last week's show title was talking to the bear which was some thing that popped out of my mind and the idea was that you get a stuffed animal bear and you talk to it as a means of working out your technical problems 
is kind of like a sounding board. And I couldn't remember if I was just making up that reference or if it's just a common thing. A lot of people emailed with other things that they've heard. One of them was rubber duck debugging, which is a Jeff Atwood uh, blog post that was recent. <laughs> I don't think he made up that term either. I still haven't read that blog post. It's still buried in my Insta paper. Uh, someone else said Taylor's dummy. But then they said they tried to Google that and couldn't find any hits. So maybe they spelled, misspelled Taylor. But Thunder Keys, that's not his name, Brian Almeida on Twitter sent me a link to Time Management for System Administrators by Tom Limoncelli. It's an O'Reilly book. And in that book, he sent a screenshot of the contents of that book. There's that quote about talking to the bear. It talks about a stuffed animal bear and how you can how you know put it on your desk and uh, he, some person in the book was talking to the bear to work things out. Now, I don't have any specific memory of reading time management for system administrators, but I've read a lot of O'Reilly books in my time and a lot of them had to do with system administrators. So maybe I did read that book and maybe that's where that came from. But I'm glad that I'm not entirely crazy and this is actually a thing. What color maybe, What color are the system administrator books? Are they the blue ones? Like, Well, the back in the day, the spines of all the O'Reilly books were pink. So I have a whole section on my shelf that's got these pink, pinkish spines, but then they started to color coding them. And I think the system in ones, well... I, I think maybe dark blue is the color they yeah. use for system and stuff, like a navy blue, but they keep changing things. But I, I, I kind of like the days when they were all pink. All right. Next one we have is uh, we're asking about this game on the Mac, uh, on the iOS app store, whose requirements in the requirements metadata in the left-hand column said one thing, and then the description part that the developer writes said another thing. And uh, good old Nick Dirk wrote in to tell us that he was having problems with this, where he bought the game, he read the requirements, bought the game, thought it should work, but then it turned out it didn't, and the developer said, oh, you got to read the description. Um, and he brought it up with Apple, they gave him a refund, and they said, we'll look into the issue, blah, blah. So I was wondering why why the disparity? Why have a description that the developer has to write that is correct in terms of what the game can run on, and then metadata on the left-hand side that is incorrect and will cause people to buy the game who can't actually run it? And this example was like, uh, the app description said it runs on iPhone 4, iPad, or iPhone 3GS, but the requirement said it'll run on iPhone, iPod Touch, or iPad with iOS 3.1.3 or later. So if you have an iPhone 3G, it seems to fall in those descriptions, but the description that the developer wrote said, no, 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 3GS, it's got to be 3GS, it can't be 3G, even if your 3G is running like iOS 4.2 or something. Uh, so I wondered what the deal with that was. And Brian Dorfman wrote in to tell me that this is a situation where the developer's hands are kind of tied. He says that developers can't set the list of devices their app can run on. All you can set are the version of the operating system and unique hardware features like this needs a GPS or this needs cameras. You can't say like this works on a 3G but not on a 3GS. Uh, so, and also he says he suspects an app would be rejected for trying to exclude devices based on hardware feature that it doesn't really need. Like if you check the box for like needs a front-facing camera just to exclude the iPad 1 that the app reviewers might get cranky about that. So like, hey, your app doesn't do anything with the camera. Why are you checking that? You're like, oh, well, I'm checking it because I want to exclude the iPad 1 from my requirements or whatever. Uh, so that's an unfortunate situation. I understand what Apple's trying to do. It's saying don't build your piece of software for a set of devices. Build it for a set of features. But especially with things like games where they're so sensitive to CPU and GPU speed, if you make a game and it turns out that it can't run on a 3G but can run on a 3GS, it's very difficult to express that, apparently, with the things you're allowed to specify in your app metadata. So that's kind of a shame. 
And you would think by now it would have been addressed. Like, I don't think this is a unique or new issue. Maybe Apple's position is, if you make something that runs on a 3G but not on a 3GS, uh, either bump your OS version so that you exclude the 3G or uh, don't make your game like that. I don't know. <laughs> you know make your game run faster. Yeah. So that's, that's unfortunate. But I'm, gl- I'm glad to learn that it's not a... Uh, not something that developers... Like, it's not a developer mistake. You know, the developers really, as in many things, their hands are tied. They, what can they do? They have a game that runs on a 3GS and not on a 3G. They, and, and it does run on iOS 3.1.3 or later. But if you've got an iOS 3G with, with or you've got an iPad, iPhone 3G with iOS 4, you're out of luck. And all they can do is in their description put big yelling letters saying, warning, you know, please read this. Read this carefully. Uh, Nicholas Friedrich wrote in to talk about Mac App Store upgrades. Uh, and he gave another interesting angle. Last week I talked about they, whoever it was they wrote in and said, do people even know what upgrades are? Like the concept of upgrading software. Uh, is that a common thing? We all know about it because we've done it for years. But if you're just coming into this brand new and you're born, born into computers before, do you know about upgrading software? This doesn't really have a lot of analogs in other parts of life. Mm. Uh, and his and Nicholas Friedrich's question is, what if the truth of the matter is that most users don't care at all about upgrades, free or otherwise? And his example is his mother and her peer group with 38 pending upgrades sitting on their iOS devices. You ever pick up someone's iOS device and the App Store icon has a badge on it with like <laughs> double-digit numbers on it? They're <laughs> like, Gee, do you know what this is? Do you, don't you know you have all the, like you're running the version of Words with Friends from three years ago. Look at all these updates. Uh, and so his idea is that it might be that the number of people who argue for free updates and the people who want paid upgrades are, com- are a combined but uh, vocal and ultimately small number of users. Uh, and the upgrade functionality exists at all uh, simply as the most convenient way to update software. So maybe it's like, oh, we all complain about upgrades and the developers want it and the computer nerds want it, but maybe everyone else just, just never updates anything. Uh, I know that when I look at my parents' devices, they have iOS devices and Macs, they're always woefully behind on software updates uh, despite the fact that I encourage them to upgrade most of the time. Uh, now, wh- one of the things, one of the great leaps forwards of, of iOS is how much easier it made buying and installing and upgrading and uninstalling software. Again, they, they even they popularized a new, more friendly name. They call them apps, even though we all knew that was short for applications. That it's become like a new word, apps. Like people didn't talk about programs or applications in pop culture until Apple basically branded and popularized popularized this word, apps. Right. So before, now, before we just called them programs. Or applications or apps. Applications. But it wasn't a term that you would see in a late night uh, you know, monologue, right? Late night show, <laughs> comedy monologue. That's kind of the threshold for like they expect everyone to get it. But once you can start throwing in jokes about apps, like, oh, everyone knows what those are. So well, I know. And, and people are using it also to refer to web applications. I'll say, oh, I built a new app. Oh, you know, iOS app. No, 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 web app. Well, I don't know if that's broken through. Websites and stuff like that kind of, but I still think people don't know what the web is. <laughs> I don't know. It, that, that is, I think people are more familiar with the concept of phone apps than they are with the, uh, with the concept of, of websites. But then maybe they just know about the Facebook. Facebook certainly is in the, the standard monologues. But uh, <laughs> anyway, the, the whole thing is it made people less afraid to install software. Like before this, if you had a computer, regular people were like, oh, I don't want to touch it. Don't want to put anything on it. I don't want to install software. And that sounds complicated. It's like install. It's like installing an air conditioner and installing something in my car's engine bay. It's like I got to be an expert to do that. But now, uh, 
with iOS, it made everybody like, no, I just fiddle my thumbs around, tap this, tap that, tap that. You know, maybe they already have an account with iTunes and the credit card is already in there and they already did it on their computer. It's like, oh, now I've got the app. Look, there it is. Uh, and this means that there's more money for developers because you're making so many more people who are not afraid to buy software. Basically, they don't know they're buying software. They think they're installing apps for a fee. Uh, but it may, that's great for developers. And it makes Apple's hardware more valuable to customers because you can do more with it. When you buy this little thing, you don't just get what you get with it. Now you get this whole world of apps that you know you're going to install and stuff like that. Uh, so it's great that iOS did that. But at a certain point, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Like if that badge <laughs> says 38 pending upgrades, it's, they're not not upgrading because they think it's too difficult. Either they don't know what that badge means and don't care or they do know what it means and don't care. So it's not it's not an ease of use issue. Maybe it's kind of an awareness issue, but I'm not sure how you work on that. You certainly don't want some big thing popping up in the US and saying, hey, did you know you have 38 pending updates and you could update to newer versions of these apps? Why would you want to do that? Newer versions are cool and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you, you can't, you don't want to, to gum up the interface with that. So I think Apple has done a very good job making it easy and problem free to do the common tasks involving applications. But if people don't want to do it, uh, they can't be beyond maybe like forcing upgrades like, oh, you just always get the latest version of the stuff. And we're just going to push it down on you, which is appropriate for some kinds of applications, like maybe a web browser where there's security concerns and stuff. And you want to be able to force or even OSs force security updates on people like they don't have a choice. Just you're going to get the security update. But that's very problematic. You got to be really careful that you're not hosing that person by forcing them an update that breaks something. And then they're all cranky about it. Uh, so I'm not sure how much more you can do to encourage people to update. But the the point beyond that is not updating is a valid strategy for computing right like that's that's what bothers us we want to be on the cutting edge and everything but if you if the versions of the applications you have work and you like them you know if anything those people could be annoyed and say why do i have to look at that stupid badge i'm never going to upgrade my my iphone works exactly like i want it to and i don't need anything else and i'm perfectly happy with it and there's only downsides to upgrading these applications you know uh, so we're going to talk more about upgrading versus not upgrading in a little bit, but I thought that was uh, an interesting point. <clears throat> Nurse Girl writes in, normally people supply their real names. Maybe Nurse Girl is a, is always in the, well, not always a lot, frequently in the chat room. Well, he or she is yeah, not. We, we do not know if they are actually a nurse or uh, female gender. We don't, we don't know, but they're simply a, a person going by Nurse Girl has contacted us. That's what you're saying. That's right. She says, uh, this is about the forced upgrade stuff. Uh, while I agree that paid software upgrades are often a choice, I think that mo to most non-geeks, there's only one type of software that they've ever paid to upgrade, and for them, it wasn't much of a choice. And she's referring to word processing software, Microsoft Word in particular, which is awful for changing file formats between versions and making the new file format automatic for saving. This is one instance of a common refrain I got was that you're forced to upgrade by programs that are in common use and uh, whose file format changes in incompatible ways. So if you just stuck with like Word 95, eventually when all your friends got Word 97 and they start passing around Word 97 documents because Word 97 saves in Word 97 format by default, you can't open those in Word 95. And then you have to like email them back, oh, can you please save us in the old format? The same thing happened with like doc versus dot doc versus dot doc X, where they switched to like the zipped up XML tree of file format instead of the big binary blob format. Uh, lots of people wrote in about Photoshop, the same type of deal. Uh, Jim Cloudman wrote an entire blog post about it. I put it in the, the, uh, the show notes. 
And what he calls it is social lock-in, where you have to have the highest version of the application that the people you're working with have. Because if everyone you're working with has CS5 uh, or earlier, you have to at least have CS5 because if the guy who has CS5 saves it in some you know Photoshop CS5 format and you want to open the file and make sure it looks exactly like it did when the person created it, everyone has to be kind of on the same version. Uh, and the, the other thing he puts in here, which is appropriate for his name being Jim Cloudman, what a name that is, hmm. uh, is the cloud, uh, applications that have a cloud component to it. Because if you stick with your old version of the program, there's a chance that down the road, the thing that you're cloud syncing with, like the, the network service that, you're, that your application is connecting to, will go away. Uh, so you can't just sit there and keep using the old version forever because eventually the entire world moves on. I mean, oh, it's fine. I don't collaborate with the entire world. It's just me using this. If the, the server-side service that you're using fades away, then you're out of luck there. And cloud services being kind of an increasing part of how applications work, like you're not just buying a piece of software, you're buying into an ecosystem, even something you know simple like Instapaper, which is a one-man application, there's a server-side component to that. You're basically buying a... You're, you're paying for the client-side application, but without the server-side component, Instapaper is almost entirely useless. So you're getting, you're getting those two parts of the product that you're buying there. And this is different than like individual users in the past could like maintain a working Mac with a fixed version of an OS and a bunch of apps for a long time. Like, you know, you have a Mac SE and you're running Mac draw on it or some file maker database that keeps your whatever for your business. Right. Uh, like I said in the last show, until that computer breaks and you can't find any parts to fix it, it can continue to work fine using system six and file maker and you know, whatever doing its thing as long as it keeps humming along. And you can, they can last for a long, 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 long time like that because computers, if t- properly taken care of, do last a very long time. But this changes with cloud software because software plus hardware combination stops being useful when the cloud service goes away. Your hardware is still fine. Your software is still exactly the way you got it. It still works exactly as it did. But when it tries to connect over the network to that cloud thing, that cloud thing is gone. And the thing is that people who run the cloud services aren't motivated to keep them up as long as that individual might be motivated to keep his FileMaker database running, you know, with the, his, on his Mac SE to keep his flower business uh, running, keeping track of his orders, right? Because maybe he's highly motivated to just not change that because it works fine. It doesn't need anything new. He doesn't want to learn anything new, right? But the cloud service provider, as soon as all of its customers have either stopped using the service, you know, or most of the customers, or moved on to the newer version of the service, they're not motivated to keep the service running just for that one guy to keep paying for the the rack space, or even just the little VM that that one guy is connecting to or something. So this entirely changes the equation. Uh, so all these are reasons why you might be forced to upgrade. But the, the, the social lock-in from file format one, you can't really blame the software maker for that one. Like you, Maybe you can blame them like, oh, Microsoft, why did you make the default in Word 97 to save Word, documents in Word 97 format? Well, that kind of makes sense. If you made a cool new format that has some new features, wouldn't you want your thing to save in it by default? And Microsoft had all these built-in compatibility warnings, at least in the Mac version, like, warning, you realize by saving this, people who have versions X, Y, and Z might not be able to do it. Do you run a, might be able to read it. Do you want to run a compatibility check and make sure, you know, they tried to do the right thing, but at some point, you got to say, look, we're, you know, file formats are not, we're going to make a better version of an application and we're going to extend the file format to support our new features. And yeah, it's going to save in that format by default. Like that's the way it works. And if you don't like that, it, don't blame us for making a fancy new version of the program. Blame all your friends. It's a social lock-in and the people you should be blaming are like everyone you're collaborating with. If everyone you're collaborating with always upgrades from CS5 to CS6 to whatever, every time Adobe comes out with a new version, well, it, that's the circle of people you're working with. And if you find it unacceptable, work it out with them. Because if you guys all agree, we're going to stick to CS4 
and until CS8 comes out, and that's a feasible strategy for you, then you guys don't have to keep, you know, it's, it's deciding amongst yourselves, you know. And if you're in a business, if you're in a business where all like the, the, the service bureaus that you work with keep changing formats, that's just what you got to keep up with. But I don't think you can blame the software developer for that particular thing. Uh, it's they're not the one forcing everyone to upgrade. I mean, yes, they're encouraging them to buy new versions of the software, but there's nothing stopping everyone in a particular circle of interrelated businesses to decide they're not going to push everyone up. I mean, this happens within a single corporation all the time. And IT will often say, well, you know, well, they, they, a lot of, of companies skipped Windows Vista. So they say, well, stick with XP and we'll wait for Windows 7 to come out. And they just all decided that within a company and, that, and that's how it worked for them. There's no reason that uh, service bureaus can't do the same thing. Now, eventually you may be forced to upgrade because like maybe this, your service bureau or the people you talk to say you need to lease CS5. So you don't need to have the latest, latest, but if you're still using CS2, then you're kind of out of luck. So it's, it's you are eventually, if you're going to interact with other people, forced to keep up to date in some way, but you're not forced to do it by the people making the new versions of the software. You're forced by your peers who you are interoperating with. Now, for the cloud services, that's where you can blame the vendor because they're the one deciding that it's no longer financially feasible to keep this cloud service up. And that's kind of, that's something we'll have to work out. It's the danger of buying an application with an associated cloud service. You're necessarily getting something that is dependent on the software developer's continued uh, goodwill towards that particular version. And so, yeah, if they, if they sunset this particular cloud service or this particular version of this cloud service, you're, they, have shortened the po- they have shortened the lifetime of your application versus what it would have been if it was just a standalone app. But that just may be the way things go in the future. Like, it used to be applications are software plus hardware, and now they're software plus hardware plus services. And that's what you're buying into. And I don't think it's economically feasible for these services to have the same kind of lifetime that the software plus the hardware could, because the software and the hardware was sort of unchanging. But the service is like an ongoing cost about hosting that and bandwidth and whatever, depending on the service. Like, if you really want to make friends out of your customers and really be awesome to them, you can keep every old version of your API up forever. But very few companies do that. Like they just they just rev the new API and say, well, clients or client software or even our version, you know, upgrade to a new version of our client, you'll be fine. Twitter, how many times has Twitter changed its API? If you were using like an original Twitter client or like Twitterific for like the version one, it probably wouldn't work at all with the current Twitter. And they changed the cloud service and, and you would have to download a new version of that application. I mean, you know, Icon Factory is good and those have all basically been free except for major upgrades. But uh, I think we'll see more of that type of problem, the, the cloud service problem. And the social problem has been with us forever and that's true. But again, I don't blame the vendors for that. Can we do a sponsor break? Quick sponsor break. You can. It's freshbooks.com, painless billing. It's the fastest way to track time, organize expenses, invoice your clients. I use them, have been for a long time. And uh, I think you should try it out too. Uh, the guys that uh, work with me, they use it. When they send their invoices, shows up right there in, on, in my FreshBooks. I can pay them from there. It's great because when people come to pay you, they can use things like PayPal. They can use your favorite authorized.net if that's true, or they can just cut you a check because they get a really professional looking invoice. It's got your logo on it. And you know when they've checked your email. They know when they've checked your invoice because you see it. You see that their email has been sent to them. Then when they click that link that they get in the email, it registers it on the website. And then you know, oh, they've seen my invoice. They can automatically send them a reminder. One thing I haven't talked about a lot is recurring invoices. 
So if you do regular work for somebody, or let's say somebody's advertising on your website, and you want to send them an invoice on the first of every month, you can customize it. It'll do that. Just set up a recurring invoice. Boom. Automatically invoices them. They pay it late. You give them a notification. Tons and tons of really great add-ons are available for your favorite websites, whether it's Zendesk or Basecamp or uh, really anything. I mean, all of these sites exist out there. They have a very open API, so they really encourage people to connect to it. And their blog always has really great tips uh, on how you can use their services. They have a really cool newsletter that has tons of tips. I'm speaking of newsletters, it'll plug into a handful of newsletter platforms. So if you have a customer and you want them to automatically get your newsletter, you can do that. Tons of really great stuff here. I love these guys. They make billing and invoicing and getting paid really, really easy and straightforward. Try it free for 30 days, full access at freshbooks.com. I was going to move on to my next bit of follow-up here, but High Ending in the chat room said something I want to respond to. He says, it's kind of disingenuous to imply that a piece of software having new features implies that they have to change the file format each time. The, the implication being, I guess, that software makers are maliciously changing the file format to force upgrade, you know, like, oh, we didn't have to change the file format in an incompatible way, but we're doing it anyway just to make you all the more motivated because we know about the social lock-in thing. We know that certain people are on contracts and they're going to get the new version, Word 97, and we're going to change the format because we know the pressure that will apply to everyone else to upgrade. I'm not sure if that's ever happened. Like, if if for absolutely no technical reason the format was revved just to make people upgrade, I'm sure someone did it somewhere. But I don't think it's as widespread as people think it is because the, the end user frustration is like, oh, you know, I got to upgrade. I know these people are doing this on purpose. It's kind of just the how do you vent your frustration? You assume malicious intent on the part of the software maker because it makes you feel better and, and you know, lets you vent your frustration. But there are tons of legitimate reasons to change the file format when, when you add features or not. Even if you added zero features to an application, anyone who's ever written a program knows that like, by the time you get to breathe and look at the next version, you could say, man, this file format, uh, every time we have to modify this type of entity or add this other type of entity, we have to extend the file by this number of bytes, and it's really inefficient. And if we tried to recompact it, sometimes it's hard to hook things back up when you don't have the code to reattach all the entities. You know? And so oh, if, I just, if I just rearrange this file format and put things in a different way or made a better extensible system, it would make us have less of a chance of creating a corrupt file if you use certain features. It would make our files smaller. Like There's tons of programmery reasons to rev your file format uh, into uh, a format that's not readable, even if you add zero features. But major versions of products always add features, and those features presumably are some way of adding entities to... uh, to a file, and that's going to manifest itself in a change in the file format, even if it's just a new different entity type or whatever. You say, well, they should have forethought and make a completely extensible file format that can always be read in a backward compatible way, and old versions just ignore the new things. And, like, this is all hard stuff. I, I being a programmer, I come down on the side of thinking that pretty much all the time, you know, except for, like, some very rare exceptions, when a file format is revved, it's done for technical reasons, not for business reasons, not to forth upgrade. Because almost anything you do to an application whose job it is to make documents, almost anything you do uh, to add features to that, that application will result in the file format having to be tweaked a certain way. Now, by the time these programs mature, presumably they've worked out some sort of generic container format with typed entities in which they can add new things without having to read the file format. But even that, just getting to that point, it takes many years and many tries. And sometimes there's false starts where you think you're in the middle and it's like, all right, we've got a generic format now. 
it's, you know, this will be fine forever. We'll never have to rev the format and just new versions of the program. Old versions of the program will just ignore entities they don't understand. And then you realize you kind of screwed that up and that's not technically true because here's a new kind of entity that is so essential that if it's ignored, the program is nonsense, the file is nonsensical and, you know. Uh, so I, I don't I don't assign malicious intent to revving file formats, even though I'm probably it sure has happened once or twice. Most of the time, I think it's for real technical reasons. All right. Joe Fiorini writes in to say that uh, he listened to an episode about the Apple TV and the HDMI output settings instead mm-hmm. like RGB high, RGB low. And I, the, our, my conclusion was that uh, after tra- discussing this, that you should probably just leave it on auto because it's probably doing the right thing. And if you mess with it, it could screw stuff up. Well, he was in a situation where the picture coming out of his Apple TV onto his CRT television didn't look good. And when they were trying to like look at the Netflix things, they had a real uh, difficult time reading the titles under the cover art. And uh, things didn't look right to them. So this is a little follow-up to say, if, you, if you're having issues with the image on your Apple TV, like even though you should just leave it in auto, if you're actually having visual problems, like if the screen doesn't look right to you, that's the time when you should go into the settings and fiddle with it. And he says he turned it on RGB low, and now his titles are completely readable on Netflix, and blacks look better. So uh, here's a situation where someone solved the problem by going to that menu. So what I was railing against before was like my idea of if you're a nerd, you're like, everything looks fine, but could I make it look better if I went into the settings? That you shouldn't do. But if you're having problems, I would suggest visiting that menu and trying the three different settings that are there and seeing if any of them help you uh, make your things look better. So I'm glad we were able to help somebody. Uh, David Wheeler wrote in, this was an old follow-up about the readability middleman thing, and he, he the contrast he was drawing was that... Uh, the, for a lot of the other middlemen, like the App Store and some, uh, the App Store, the Apple is the middleman for selling software. Developers have to opt into that. And the distinction in readability is whether you're allowed, if there's a way to opt in or opt out. And in readability, there's, you don't have to opt in. And even opting out seems like it might be complicated. Uh, you have to like contact them and say, please stop collecting money on behalf and hope that they respond and do what you ask. And the reason I bring this up is because the most recent Back to Work episode, Bold with Scissors, Bold with the Scissors, episode 63, Merlin talked a lot about this particular aspect of middlemen and on the topic of agency, where his big peeve was when people claim to be representing you or claim to be your business partner when they have no actual prior relationship with you. And he expanded this not just from readability, from all sorts of things that go on on the web uh, involving... Uh, him and his experiences as a speaker, for example, with speaking bureaus who have, you know, who just contact you and say, oh, hey, I'm trying to get you a speaking gig. And you're like, I don't, I don't have any relationship with you. What are you doing? Oh, we've already agreed on a price for you. Uh, <laughs> so I encourage everyone to listen to that episode of Back to Work. I put it in the show notes, episode 63, because it does relate to the readability stuff that we talked about the last show. And David Wheeler's comment about opt-in versus opt-out. Can you choose to participate with this middleman or is this middleman choosing to be part of the relationship? whether you like it or not. So that's, for the, that's it for the follow-up. Not so bad. Yeah. I could have done more readability follow-up, but I really... I too many other things to get to. We two topics today. Okay. Two topics and change, but I'll skip the change. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about possible future iPhone screen sizes, a topic that was also discussed on other shows this past week, and then I want to talk a little bit about gaming, or probably a lot about gaming. So I'll try, I'll try to get through the iPhone stuff quickly. Uh, so I think the talk show talked about iPhone screen sizes the most. Though you talked about it on Build and Analyze too. Uh, 
this is based on some rumors that are floating around that I first saw linked from uh, Daring Fireball about uh, the new iPhone having a different size screen than the current one. Uh, actually, I want to talk about Build and Analyze, what Marco said about it Build and Analyze first. So the, the rumor was that the screen would be taller, but not wider. And one of the things that Marco uh, addressed was, does that help? Like the, the, the story is like, oh, it's going to be taller, but not wider. And that makes it easier for developers to deal with because it's the same width. They just make it taller and you don't have to fiddle with your app as much. Now, what Marco said was that changing any dimension means developers have to revisit and possibly revise their app layouts. Like there's no, there's no free lunch, you know, say, so, oh, because we only changed the height. There's like practically nothing you have to do. If they change the width or if they change the height, you got to go through all your screens and all your controls and make sure they, you know, everything works and looks right. And depending on how much taller they make, maybe you need to move stuff around because now things are out of reach or whatever. And so his, you can correct me if I'm misinterpreting this because I listened to that show a while ago, but it seemed like he was saying that changing the height, changing the width, six of one, half a dozen of the other, it's not like this big, like, oh, they're genius, they've changed the height, it'll be so much easier than if they had, for example, changed the width or changed the width and the height. Uh, it's work no matter what. Is that your impression of what he was saying? That, yeah, mostly, and... Yep, go go on, but yes. So here are my contentions on that, that issue. Uh, supporting my conclusion that it is slightly better to change the height and not the width. First is that vertical scrolling is more common than horizontal scrolling in iOS applications. And I don't mean like navigation scrolling where one screen replaces the other and it appears to slide in from the left to the right. I mean like scrolling content where you're staying on the same screen but you're moving the content around to see more on the top or the bottom. Vertical, in my experience, is much more common than horizontal, right? And what that means, I think, is that you're much more likely for an application to have UI elements that are created for a fixed width than for a fixed height. And examples would be like, say you have made like a, a static image type header that's going to be poised at a fixed header or a fixed hooder. They're going to footer. They're going to be poised at the top or bottom of your scrollable region, which is a common type of thing. Uh, I'm sure the controls that Apple provides stretch nicely to different widths, but I also think that iOS developers are not beyond either using fixed pixel widths for things in there such that it doesn't look right if they get stretched because gaps open up or doing their own custom header header and footer toolbars, especially in stuff like games where they have where they've basically done a custom UI that looks kind of like Apple's UI, but really it's made up of a bunch of interlocking images or maybe just one big static image. Right. And those images are for a fixed width. So if you change the width of the screen, even by a single pixel, I think developers would be more likely to have to revise static content pieces to fit into width than height because height they're already it's a scrolling region and you're already expecting to scroll you know stuff up and down so if you if you can see a little bit more of it you've already you know that's that I think you would get for free you're more likely to get that for free than you would for that stuff and again I think Apple standard controls probably have no problem getting a little bit wider but I think that an app is much more likely to have some sort of horizontal elements that that add up to the screen width exactly and would need to be revised then they would have vertical elements to add up to the screen with exactly simply because vertical scrolling is more common than horizontal so i give a very slight edge to the uh, amount of work required to revise your application if it only changes in height vertically not so much that it's like oh now it's a slam dunk and we're sure this is what they're definitely going to do and it's obvious like doubling the res or whatever like that's an obvious huge win but i do say it's slightly better just to change the height uh now, let's see, do I have all these links in here? I think I have them in here. I linked to all the stuff that uh, Gruber linked to from Daring Fireball, which were all these uh, blog posts. The first one, I think, was on The Verge, where somebody mocked up 
what they thought it would look like. They said, here's the current resolution. It's three by two. Here's the new size. It's nine by five. The width is the same. The height has just increased. And they did a bunch of mock-ups showing the home screen. Hey, look at the home screen. You can fit a new row of, of uh, icons on it. You know, So instead of being, what is it? You got four rows. Now you've got five rows of icons. And he showed a bunch of typical applications, like look how much more room there is. Once the keyboard slides up, you have a bigger viewport that you can look through, at least in, land, uh, in portrait mode and landscape. I think it would actually get worse. And look how much nicer the web page looks like. You know, uh, Look how much more you can see on the maps. All sorts of screenshots, basically, showing how a taller screen would look. And, and I have to admit, it looks pretty good. Uh, and then there's another one here called The Russians Used a Pencil that Gruber also linked to. And he linked back to Marco's post on these topics as well, showing what the phone might look like. So they've taken the existing little pictures of the phone and said, here's an iPhone 4S, and here's the iPhone with the screen stretched to be taller. And they just basically took the picture of the iPhone 4S, cut it in half, pulled the parts apart, and added, you know, and put the larger image in there. Uh, and then he also showed a three by two version that's also larger, where you just make the entire screen larger. Uh, so what this all reminded me of was a long time ago when I had uh, the original 22-inch Apple Cinema display that I was reviewing. Uh, did I get to keep that? I think I bought my own eventually. Yeah, I did have the original 22-inch Apple Cinema display. I put a link to it in the show notes because most people probably don't remember what they looked like, but it was the one that had the clear feet. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah, I had one. Yeah, I think it's still in my attic somewhere. Uh, it was... And had the DV, DV, not DVI connection. Was it prior to the DVI connection? Yeah, it was uh, ADC. ADC, the correct yeah. chat room. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was it was an, an amazing product. Uh, still not quite equaled because when it came out of the box, you had what seemed for the time a ridiculously large screen. Like 22-inch LCDs were not common when this thing was released. And the only thing that came out of this thing was one cord. There was no power cord. It was just one cord with a plug on the end of it that looked kind of like a weird exactly. connector thing. And you plugged that cord into the back of your Mac, and that was it. Yeah, the you Mac, the the Mac provided power and video and everything. It was great. And USB. And it did have FireWire, too. I don't remember. I think it was a, a port of some kind. I think it might have had FireWire. Ports. I don't think it had FireWire. I think it was just USB. Let me look for this in my... And I'm, looking, I'm looking at now at the page finally opened, uh, and it just lists USB doesn't say firewire all right so but anyway like there was tons of stuff running over that cable and that's why everyone hates apple because they make these proprietary connectors that nobody else has and if you want an extension cable it was difficult to find and you know there are many reasons why this was bad but there were some reasons why it was good too uh so this was an amazing piece of technology at the time and i remember i reviewed it as and the power mac g4 cube for ars technica that wasn't mine that was a loner that i just got to review and it was in the forums or something. I was looking for this forum post, but I couldn't find it. And people were asking me to make some predictions about future Apple hardware. What do you think they're going to do next? They've done this crazy cube. They've done this this weird flat monitor thing. Everything looks all cool. What is, what's the future? Make a prediction about the future of Apple hardware. And I was trying to think of something that I was 100% sure would be true. Like the most sure I could possibly <laughs> be, but not, but not based on any inside info or anything. Right. And my response would be, that Apple's next line of displays will have a thinner frame around the display area. Like, so if you look at that picture of the Apple Cinema display, which I think was already posted to the chat room, there's, a, there's the black of the screen when it's off or whatever. And then there's this surrounding white frame, like a picture frame, right? And, you know, the clear little feet. And my prediction, which was completely obvious to me, was that 
as awesome as this display looks, it looks futuristic and amazing and it's huge and people will come to my house and go, whoa, what is that? I would say the, their next line of displays will have a thinner frame around uh, the screen portion. And that was like the stupidest, people were like, this is the stupidest prediction ever. Who cares? <laughs> that doesn't, you know, and or people said, that's like a 50-50 chance. It might be this, why would they make it thinner? It makes no sense. Well, from, from an aesthetics perspective, it, it was obvious to me and I think most people also agree that like things with thick frames that you're not holding in your hand like an iPad, the the trend in technology is to shrink that extra stuff. So think of like a CRT television where it has this huge thing behind it. You know, so they used to be built into pieces of furniture. It was like a wooden cabinet and then a bunch of stuff and then your TV. Okay, and then it was just a plastic TV, but it was huge. Like everything getting thinner, smaller, thinner, smaller. And like the screen is the only part that you see. Anything that's not the screen is unnecessary. So the trend over time, if you were to look at time lapse of what televisions have looked like is the non-screen portion of the television has been rapidly disappearing to the point now where like some Samsung models with like edge lit uh, backlit displays they're ridiculously thin. It's like a it's like a sixty inch diagonal thick piece of cardboard, uh, and everything about it. Same thing you've seen on television. Everything about it is going away because what's important about the screen is just the screen. Uh, now the reason this comes up in the context of the iPhone is that all these mockups and, and discussions of like what if you made the screen taller, they take the existing iPhone and they and they just stretch it out so it's longer and it's been pretty obvious to me starting from iphone the iphone one that these if you look at the front of the device the screen is the part that you care about and anything that's not the screen is basically waste area now it's not wasted because you gotta have the microphone and you gotta have the speaker and you gotta have the home button like there's essential components that you have to have there but do they need all that room does the home button need to be that big and have that much space around it? Uh, it seems like there's always been room to make them thinner. And they've been a similar size for the entire history of the iPhone through the 1 and the 3G and the 4. They're, 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 they've been getting a little bit smaller, but they're pretty big. Uh, so I look at those things and I think uh, that's where you can gain some room. But not by changing the size of the actual phone, but by making the screen encroach on those blank regions, right? Uh, and I was even thinking of like, well... You know, oh, so you have to have the camera and you have to have the mic and you have to have the speaker. Can any of those things be buried under the screen? Maybe would the mic work under a screen or would it be too muffled? But could you use the screen, the display as a speaker? Can a camera see through the screen or would it be too much backlight? I don't know what the technical issues are, but I that's one of the fantastical things I'm thinking of. Like maybe you can just make the whole front of the thing a giant screen and bury everything underneath it or off on the side. Could Apple pull that off? And if not, then just shrink those areas a little bit. And Gruber said exactly the same thing in his post. He said that he thinks when people keep talking about this and saying how it looks silly, it looks like a long, skinny phone, they're assuming that the, that, that you know, quote-unquote, empty blank space is going to be exactly the same size and they'll merely make the screen bigger. And he agrees with me that he thinks it's more likely that they will make the screen bigger and make, to the extent technically possible, make the non-screen portion smaller. And the, the most obvious place to do this is probably the area around the home button. If you make the home button squished or make it smaller or just, you know, compress that, you can get a little bit of room by the home button. I think you can get a little bit of room on the top part, too, if you compress up, like, the camera, the microphone, you know. Obviously, this is a technical patch packaging consideration, and you have to rearrange components, but that's that's what Apple's for. Uh, and same thing with the width, I say, too. I, I've thought that if they wanted to, they could also shave off a little bit of the edges. The screen has been getting closer to the edges, but there's probably a little bit more room there. Um, So this idea of a taller screen 
iPhone would just be another kind of like, yeah, uh, so there's some rumors and people did some mock-ups, like so what, right? Except, as you noted on the talk show with Gruber, what he said after he linked to the original thing, this was this mock-up by Timothy Collins on The Verge, he said, methinks Collins wasn't merely guessing or idly speculating, which is Gruber's way of saying that he may or may not have some inside info that does or does not corroborate (laughs) what he... Right, cutting cutting through that, it kind of sounded to me like John was saying he's he's on to something, and maybe John knows something about it. Yeah, like, and normally he doesn't drop hints like that. Like, well, normally he doesn't even link to stuff like that. Because how many mockups are there? Like, oh, here's a mockup of the possible iPhone five. Remember all the tapered ones and everything like that. There were a ton of those, and to to have them linked, it's either going to be like here is I would say from his editorial point of view, he would link to something to say here is a trend that's going on. Tons of people are talking about this wedge shaped iPhone. So I'm going to link to what I think is a representative story and comment on the phenomenon. But linking to an individual speculation and then saying that uh, I'm guessing this guy just isn't pulling this out of his butt. I'm guessing it's based on some inside information because it basically says to me that he has heard some of the same things from sources that he considered reliable. Not to the point where he's going to say definitively this guy is exactly right or I have heard exactly the same things. But that's what makes this entire thing rise up and, and make me take notice. Uh, and he made a lot of good points about the the manufacturing uh, economies of scale of keeping exactly the same uh, density of the LCD displays because his assumption was that you could keep the same fabrication things and just sort of cut the displays into different sized chunks. I don't know enough about flat panel manufacturing to know if that's true, but it seems logical to me that making... Making screens at a different pixel density would be slightly more expensive than making screens at exactly the same pixel density, but just a different size. Uh, but that that made me start to give up on my idea for a differently sized screen on an iPhone, which was that the screen would the resolution would maintain remain the same, but the DPI would drop from three sixty five to three hundred or whatever. It's like three sixty four an hour or something. So the dots per inch would go down, which means the screen would get larger. And what it would mean is that you would have an iPhone. With exactly the same screen ratio, I also think you'd get make the regions above and below the screen smaller, but make the screen wider and taller. Not in terms of resolution, but in terms of size. Just a little bit bigger, because I think you're getting to the point now where the iPhone next to other phones, like these gargantuan giant Android things, and even some of the Windows phones, the iPhone is looking kind of small and fat. And I think if you made it just slightly taller and slightly wider and slightly thinner, uh, it would... It would fit in better with the current line of phones that are out there. And, and, and I think that's it's like, well, do you just want to look like everyone else's phone? I think that they've proven that a slightly bigger screen could be advantageous, not a gargantuan screen. I think they've also proven that making the screen too big is ridiculous. But I think the iPhone screen can get just a little bit bigger, especially if you get a trade off in terms of more battery life or a thinner form factor or both. How important, though, do you think it is to Apple that their developers, not their own developers, but iOS developers uh, are transitioned well. In other words, would Apple come out with a screen that is of a different size, whether it's just in one dimension or both? Do you think Apple is going to say anything other than, hey, developers, this is the new size, um, deal with it, fix your apps? Or do you think that they would provide a more gentle transition to it somehow? I think Apple is very aware of trying to make a good transition for its developers. And I think there would have to be a pretty darn good reason to change the screen size. And I think that pretty darn good reason is that you can see more stuff on the screen. Like that 
that it makes more things possible, that phones with larger screens are nicer for people to use. Even if you're just thinking about like the majority of the population that's above the age of 30 now, you know, we're an aging population. Uh, it's easier for them to see things that are just a little bit bigger. Not giant, not, you know, the things with the stylus and these giant phones that you're holding up to your head that look ridiculous, but just like four millimeters bigger in, in width, three millimeters bigger in height. And at the same time, like this is all implying stretching the screen out. If they decide the only way we can do this, so they think this is an important product change. We need to make the, the screen area slightly bigger. And to do that, we also need to make the case slightly bigger too. Not entirely. We're going to try to do all that by making, you know, by minimizing the non-screen area. That's mostly how we're going to make it bigger. But we also have to make the case a little bit bigger. And we've decided the only way we can do this is by changing the screen resolution. Then they would go to developers and say, look, this is the way it's going to be. They would not stop doing it because the developers would have problems. But I think they are going to try very, very hard either not to have to tell developers to have to change their apps or to have some sort of story for them where, yeah, you got to change your apps, but it's not that bad. And I think only changing the height but not changing the width is a reasonable compromise. That we want to make the thing bigger for a variety of reasons. We want to see more information. We think people like bigger screens or whatever. And we've decided the only way to get a, to get a meaningful gain in that regard like, we can't just change the size. We also have to change the resolution because we really need to get that extra information on the screen so our, our apps don't look cramped compared to everybody else's. We don't want to go gargantuan, but we just want a little bit more. And we're, I think they would say to developers, uh, and to try to make this not so bad for you, we only change the height. Uh, so I don't think Apple is going to not do something. To say, like, no, no ideas are getting shot down in Apple's meetings because this would hurt developers. But I totally think that everything that comes up they're saying, okay, here are the benefits. Can we do this in a way that doesn't hurt developers that badly? Uh, so I I uh, put a lot of weight into Gruber saying that he doesn't think this person's idly speculating. All that could mean is that they've done tests with screens of this size. But it makes sense to me from an Apple's perspective. Then the things that make sense to me are the overall idea that the screen on the I, uh, on the iPhone is too small, both in terms of physical size, because people have a hard time seeing that little tiny thing, and in terms of the amount of information they can put on the screen. So resolution and size. I think that is a real live problem that Apple is going to address. And of the ways that I've heard of them addressing it, the two I like the best are just make it taller or make the screen bigger, but don't change the amount of information on it just to help people with poor, eye, poor eyesight. And all these things I'm talking about are tiny changes, and most of them are gotten by removing the non-screen area. So it... It's a delicate balance, and that's how, that's how I see uh, Apple balancing the developers' needs and the customers' needs. But overall, like the, with Apple, always the overriding factor is Apple's decision that I'm also speculating about that the screen needs to be bigger on the iPhone, and that that's driving everything. It's just as like how can we get this done? But if they they would never do it for any other reason, then they think it will make a better product, and then it's just a matter of how best do we bring this to market. So we'll see eventually if mm -hmm. an iPhone 5 ever comes out. But I'm, I'm rooting for, I'll make my same prediction I did on the cinema display, less non-screen area on the next iPhone. And I think there is a strong possibility that the screen will not be exactly the same size as the 4S, that it will be larger in one or both dimensions. Can we do our second spot? Good idea. Hover.com, simplified domain management. This is the thing, we all have domains. Heard me talk about these guys all all week long. Uh, let let's make the domain registration process simple for once. That's their whole motivation. 
That's what these guys are all about. You go to hover.com. There's a, a search box. You type in the domain you want. You hit search. Is it available? Great. It shows up right there. It's not available. They'll tell you that, and they'll come up with a whole bunch of other suggestions for you. You pick one you want. You click the button to register, and you're done. And that's it. I mean, this is the thing. Everybody wants to have a .com domain or .net or whatever it is that that you like. Everybody wants one. You can think of different reasons. You get one for your family. You get one for your kid. You have a business idea. You want to make a website. Oh, I got to go get the, the .com registered. Where am I going to go? I'm saying try Hover. Because we all have more than one. You don't buy one domain in your life. You buy a dozen, probably. Maybe if you're like Merlin, he told me at 150. Isn't that what he said? I mean, he's he's got more domains than most people should probably have. But this is the thing. You go here, you go to hover.com, and the process is simple. It's clean. It's straightforward. It, it You're not constantly prompted to opt out of paying for additional services. You know what I'm talking about. It's just the way it should be, simple, single focus. And it comes with things like uh, who is privacy built in. It has DNS so that you can go ahead and redirect the domain somewhere else. You can have full DNS control if you want to manage it there. They do email too. And their transfer process is super simple. It couldn't be easier. They even have a valet service. They'll handle the whole thing for you if you don't understand how that works because it can be complicated. Go to hover.com slash Dan sent me, or just use the coupon code Dan sent me, and you'll get 10% off. Check these guys out. They're, the, they're really great. Hover.com. I'm disappointed in the chat room that no one has tried to uh, counteract my uh, assertion that the frame around the screen gets smaller by citing the current line of, of cinema displays and saying how they have actually a larger non-screen area than the aluminum ones they replaced. Why, com- why do they have that? I had a comeback for that, but no one brought it up. Well, my, what I would say is that the non-screen area on the current line of displays is almost invisible because I count the entire glass as a screen. Even though it's not lit up, what they've basically done is made the screen, which is the glass area, go from edge to edge, and, and you can barely see on some of the old ones the little tiny rim of aluminum around the thing, right? That's the frame, I'm thinking, like, visually speaking, that they want it to look like there's no frame, like one of those infinity pools that just goes off the edge, right? that the screen just goes edge to edge. Now, we know it doesn't. When you turn the thing on, we see the lit up region doesn't go edge to edge. Uh, but I think this was a transition they made from ma- material that doesn't look like the screen, whether it be aluminum or plastic in a different color that's, you know, opaque. And then there's a screen inside it. They made a transition like, it's just, oh, it's all screen. And we know it's not really all screen. It's all glass. It's all glass. over, And behind that is the LCD panel, right, that only takes up some of that region. But that's they made that transition. And I think they will now start iterating on that and making the lit up area behind the big giant seat of glass keep moving out and out and out and out. And of course, you know, as they put up on the, on the iPhone thing, or I, that's not what they're bringing up, but I'll bring up on, on the iPhone. They've like fused the display to the glass, which makes the display seem like closer to your finger, right? So uh, if that technology becomes feasible in desktop displays, I'm sure they would do that as well. So I think the transition to full edge to edge glass was a continuation of the theme I was talking about, but that now they'll have to continue iterating, making the lit up area, uh, go from to the edge. I don't know if that's shown on iPhones, uh, true on iPhones. Like I looked, I went back and looked at the picture of the iPhone one to remind myself of how much region there was above and below the screen. It was, it was pretty big. Uh, I don't know how that region has changed from the original iPhone to the three G form factor to the four form factor. It's probably gotten a little bit smaller. But as people pointed out in the chat room, that iconic image of the iPhone is a rounded rectangle, upright, facing you, 
with a dark part on the bottom, a dark part on the top, and then like a little circle for the home button. I think that silhouette can continue. It's just that those regions above and below the screen will slowly start to shrink. At some point, they may be faced with like, what do we do about the home button? And what do we do about the microphone and speaker? But they got a while, a while to go before they do that. All right. Talk about gaming a little bit here. Yeah, Diablo hmm. 3 open beta weekend. That's not what I'm going to talk about, but yes, it's true. Yeah, I'm not even into Diablo, but I just want to see what the, that game looks like. So I downloaded it and it's just sitting on my hard drive waiting to be tried out because I, I like the art style that they've gone with. And I want to see what the game looks like. I'm not very much of a gamer, so they have to tell me, is, is this out for Mac or do you have to boot in, you know, use your boot camp setup to play this? Uh, Blizzard is very good about making Mac versions of their software. It's out for Mac and PC. But that's not what I'm going to talk about today. Okay. How, did I, how did I get to this? I think I came to this through something I mentioned back when we were talking about Mountain Lion and Game Center and how Game Center was off-putting to me as a gamer and how it was weird that Apple is having this great success with iOS gaming but still doesn't seem like, as a company, they're particularly into games or that they particularly get gamers. And that kind of cascaded into my pondering of what the world is like after the advent of iOS gaming and Apple. And mm. a lot of a lot of people in the gaming industry are talking about that. And so here, here's where I want to start with this. I'm going to start with a Penny Arcade comic strip, which should not surprise people who know me because I'm a big Penny Arcade fan. This is from 2001. I've been reading Penny Arcade since basically the, the very beginning. So I remember reading this and it has stuck with me. And I think it's one of their better known strips. I put the link in the show notes. Let me put it in the chat room for all our helpful chat people today. So the strip... I remember this is 2001, so you have to rewind. That's a long time ago. It sounds like not a long time ago, but it's over a decade ago. The strip is about uh, the original crop of PlayStation ads, which actually predated 2001, right? And so it's showing a picture of... Do you have this comic up, by the way, Dan? I put the link in the chat room. Yeah, I have the link opening right now. All right. It's showing a picture of some cool-looking dude with sunglasses and blonde hair holding a PlayStation controller with, like, stars behind mm-hmm. it. And the the narration above the things is, when we saw the first commercials for the PlayStation, glitzy MTV-style affairs that spoke to the sort of people we weren't, we began to worry. They were selling our heritage to the same effing guys who used to, who used to beat us up in PE. <laughs> All right, so he, this is the voice of the Penny Arcade people talking. It's obviously they're talking from the perspective of gamers, right? right. And yeah. so they're saying that our heritage, like these video games that we played, we were stuck inside, we were the nerds, we were playing our video they games. They were for us. Yeah, and now they're selling them to the, to the guys who the, the jocks, basically, to the big popular, good-looking kids. They're trying to show popular, good-looking, cool kids playing with the PlayStation. They're selling, you know, our heritage to these people. Right. Second panel uh, shows a younger version of the, the protagonist in the, in the video uh, in the comic strip uh, being harassed by bullies in a school hallway. It says, and the, the narration says they'd never been turned into an eggplant in Kid Icarus. <laughs> they had friends and girls and sports. Why did they need games? And it's like why are they taking this away from us? Like we have a miserable life. We're, you know, we're not popular. We like don't this have was our one thing. Yeah, the one thing we have is games, and now they got to take that away and give it to these jerks, right? And then the third panel really is completely non-sequitur, and it's a, it shows the character from these comic strips standing on the table with no pants, and he says, I am the king of no pants. And the other guy says, Lord, why couldn't he be the king of pants? What does that have to do with the first two strips? Well, let me tell you, Penny Arcade, uh, the folks who make it, have been developing their skills for many years, and this was a decade ago. So, perhaps not as well connected as you'd want it to be. But so th- this idea that they're expressing here, uh, and I think the reason Penny Arcade has become popular is because they tend to express the ideas that 
everyone else who was in their peer group was feeling at the same time uh, was that gaming was something that belonged to these nerdy guys, like kind of like a hipster, not even hipster, but this is way before hipsters. It just like these other people in the world have everything else and gaming is supposed to just belong to us. But now here's Sony marketing gaming to maybe not to everyone, but to if you're in that peer group of just like high school kids, it seems like now they're marketing to everyone. Really, they're just marketing to people your age. But you liked it better when the games were just for the seven people who are your age who are also nerdy outcasts who love video games. And now they're trying to market it to your whole high school class. And that seems like a massive dilution of gaming culture. Like, no, they can't have that. That's ours. That's not that's not for regular people. All right. And this this phenomenon of something that was popular with nerds, like uh, this hasn't happened quite yet with D&D, although maybe kind of a little bit, but that there's a particular interest that nerdy people are into that they really have a, a great connection with and seeing it sold to, quote-unquote, the masses. Now, little did Penny Arcade or any of us know in 2001 that if we fast-forwarded to the current year, those guys, those, like, jocks in the first panel, they've got cool guy with sunglasses and the good-looking guy with the girlfriend and the, and the, uh, the hair and uh, playing stuff, you know who those guys are now? Those are the quote-unquote hardcore gamers. Mm. Those are the guys saying, we don't want gaming sold to other people. It's just for us. It's for the hardcore, cool, totally solid gamers. Like, forget about the original nerds. They have been so marginalized that the current hardcore gamers are the guys that this strip was complaining were take, going to be taking over the world of gaming, like the popular people, right? It is so, it is so far gone 10 years later that this strip, you, you'd have to swap all the characters. You'd have to put the jock saying... They're trying to sell gaming to my mom. Gaming is for us, man. It's for the cool dudes. We like to play, you know, first-person shooter games. We shouldn't be selling gaming to those people. That's not what gaming is about, right? <laughs> it just shows how far gaming has gone from this little tiny narrow thing to being sold to everybody. So those guys are now the hardcore gamers. And casual gaming are like people who are not quote-unquote real gamers. Now it's your mom, your mom's mom, your aunts and uncles, your friends who have never heard of computers. They're playing Bejeweled. They're playing Facebook games. They're playing Angry Birds. The base of people who play games is now so incredibly broad that the people we were scared that, that gaming would broaden out to are now the narrowest of the narrow, super hardcore gamers, right? So into this world, I'm trying to think how Apple fits as the new king of gaming, basically. If you look in terms of like, uh, number of games sold, gaming revenue, number of users, all sorts of measure, measures in which uh, Apple looks pretty darn scary and often bigger than all the traditional gaming companies combined in some respects. So Apple is kind of the new king of gaming along with Facebook and stuff, but they are definitely not the new king of gamers. However you define gamers. And like I said, the definition has changed. Now the definition is those jock guys, but the nerdy people are kind of a subset. Like now it's just teenage boys who really know how to play video games count themselves as gamers. And the subsets of them are, you know, the frat boys playing Halo or whatever. But inside there are also these, these nerdy guys, right? But the, the eggplant nerds, as I'll call them, the people, people who were changed into an eggplant <laughs> from the waist up in Kid, Kid Icarus, those are within the hardcore gamers as a subset. Now, those guys are the guys who are kind of the game equivalent of the people who like those art house movies. You know, they like they like independent games. They like games being... Cre- this is I'm including myself in this category. <laughs> they like games created by auteurs. They like, they like Journey, right? Like Limbo, Braid, or experimental Flash games like Passage. If you know what any of those things are, especially Passage, you're probably in this 
tiny subset of a tiny subset of a tiny subset of gamers. And outside, it's this wild world of other people doing other stuff. And most of them don't call themselves gamers. Uh, and yet, they're the ones playing the vast majority of the games. So, this is a difficult position for people who, you know, thought of themselves as the unique owners of a particular piece of culture and how it's broadened out to everyone else. How, how do we think about ourselves? Do we take comfort by just saying, okay, well, now we're just going to be like the art house movie guys and we'll just turn up our nose at the mainstream and we'll just enjoy our uh, extremely high quality games for gamers. The stuff the, like the titles I just listed, which I should put in the show notes. I, I have them in my notes here, but I haven't put them in the show notes yet. Uh, that we should be content with that. So like, just like the people who are totally into art house movies, they turn their nose up at the blockbuster Michael Bay movies, but they're happy to just be in their little subset watching, you know, foreign films and, uh, independent movies and stuff like that. But, uh, the other side of the coin is, well, shouldn't you be happy that this pastime that you love has now become so popular that everybody is a gamer, even if they don't self identify as a gamer, everyone plays games. Shouldn't you be happy about angry birds and even Farmville and all that stuff like that? The gaming, this pastime that you loved and said was awesome, that now everybody does and appreciates and, and they like it and everything. If you uh, talk to gamers about that, or me even, and, and, they, and you ask them, they say, well, you can kind of try to feel good about that. But what I feel like is that those people playing those games, they still don't get to call themselves gamers because what the games they're playing are like simplistic, not very interesting, not very deep. And like they're missing out on what we believe is the best the gaming has to offer. Right. And my question is, why? Why did that happen? Gaming broadening out to everybody, that's fine. At all, but in movies, for example, uh, everyone appreciates like a really great Steven Spielberg movie. Right. It's not just the nerds. Like, it's possible to have, you know, Schindler's List or whatever that everybody appreciates, that it has ma- the mass market can appreciate and that the the super nerdy art house people can also appreciate or Martin Scorsese or whatever. Like, the, 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 there exists this type of thing that satisfies both parties. Whereas in gaming, it seems like you've got Angry Birds, which is what everybody loves, but gamers turn their nose up at. And you've got Braid, which... You know, nobody's even heard of except for the nerds. Where are the blockbuster games that satisfy both groups? Why has it been sort of segregated into the real gamers and the non-real gamers? And this is scary for the real gamers because we are such a tiny, tiny, tiny and seemingly ever-shrinking proportion of the world of gaming. And we're worried that the things we love will go away unless there's some sort of crossover. And so this gets to my little heading here is what's wrong with gaming? Wrong in quotes. Why, Why is it that great games aren't used by everybody. And here's my contention as to why that's the case. People can't appreciate the very best games that gamers love without a tremendous amount of experience with games and also without a tremendous amount of skills. This is a little bit different than other things like film or wine or anything like that where you really do need to have like you can, if you really want to appreciate film, it helps to like know the history of film and know about the directors involved and all like, and, and have seen many, many movies. Like then you can really appreciate this great movie, right? Same thing with wine. You, you want to know a lot about wines. You want to have tasted a lot of wines, have experience of what the di- different things uh, that I'm looking for in a wine. And do I know that because I've tried them and I've read about this and I've tried that one? I say, yes, I identify this is this wine and that's that wine. And this is a particular, you know, experience is kind of, you expect you have to have right 
But anyone can get experience. Just watch every movie ever made. You will become a film buff. Like, you don't have to do it. You just have to experience it. And wine, if you're into wine, go on wine tasting. Buy lots of wines to really appreciate these wines, right? That's, it's, it's a barrier to entry, but it's, it's surmountable. That if you are very interested in these things and you want to have a great appreciation for art or whatever, learn about art. Read books about art. Visit museums. Talk to other people about art. Merely by experiencing it, you can move yourself up the ladder to being the quote-unquote hardcore film geek or wine aficionado or, or, you know, art connoisseur or whatever. Games have that too. If you haven't played the classic NES games or whatever, all these other games that the, uh, the current games are building upon, you're, you're at a disadvantage. So you say, okay, well, fine. I'm just going to play every game starting from the beginning of time and, <laughs> and I will become a gamer because I will have all these experiences and I will be able to appreciate these games. But there's one extra thing that is not present for the most part in film and wine and art. And that's skill. If you know how to put something in your mouth, swish it around, spit it out, and swallow it, you can do the wine stuff. If you can sit in a seat and understand the language and look at a, look at a screen, you can experience film. But there is an actual skill component to gaming. And there are many experiences in gaming that you absolutely cannot have without a minimum level of skill. And that level of skill is, in many cases, pretty darn high. You can't like appreciate the joys of team-based first-person shooters if you can't figure out how to move in a first-person shooter game. You have no idea what you're looking at. You can't tell which direction you're facing. You can't tell how to get from one place to the other. Uh, And even if you're good at first-person shooters, you can move around everything. There is a level of skill, and if you don't pass that threshold, you can't be competitive with those types of people, and you are missing out on that experience. And now, now you are not able to understand that part of the gaming culture. And lots of parts of gaming culture are like that. Not I'm saying you have to be the best player in the world at StarCraft or the best first-person shooter player, but there's a minimum threshold of hand-eye coordination and spatial awareness that really filters out a lot of people from these quote-unquote hardcore gaming. And here's some examples of this I've seen in my life. Uh, I've been trying to get my wife to play Portal and Portal 2 because they're fun games and everyone should play them, right? But she's not really that kind of a gamer. So I sat her down in front of Portal and a depressing amount of my time helping her to play that game was helping her to understand how to control yourself in a first-person shooter. Lots of time and energy spent trying to let her understand how to orient herself, how to navigate the world, how to jump, how to, you know, I mean, first-person platforming is a pain, everyone knows that, but just the, the basic stuff, right, of which direction am I facing? Or can I get over there? Well, how do I move that way? Well, how do I do that? Things that she would have no problem doing in real life. In real life, you could just look up, look down, look over there, walk over to the room, pick a thing up, whatever. But in a gaming world, there are certain skills you need to translate from, you know, your input into the coordinate system of the screen. And when I'm spending all that time helping her, like, oh, you got to face this way. Uh, or now move up just a little bit. No, you, you can't really see where your feet are. You have to look down. I know you won't see your feet, but that's like where you are. So don't go off the edge. And okay, now look back up before you jump. Make sure, you know, that's not the game. I'm not, she's not experiencing Portal. That, that part is not the game. She's missing the game. We are both missing the game because I'm spending all my time trying to tell her how to move around in the world, right? And for some people, there's just no chance that they're ever going to be able to operate a first-person shooter game at all, either because of hand-eye coordination, because the controller and mouse are, are complicated and difficult to use, because of spatial awareness, you know, like I said, translating the input, the manipulations of the input device into the coordinate space of the screen, understanding what it's going to, going to do. All these things that feel so natural for people who are quote-unquote raised as gamers can, can be not, not only difficult to learn, but sometimes just plain 
impossible to learn for some people. And it's not just an age issue. It's not like all old people can't play these games, but all young people can. There's pl- there are generations of people right now growing up who are 12, 13, 14, 15 years old or who grew up during the time when games existed who simply don't either didn't develop or, or, you know, or couldn't have developed even if they tried the skills to be successful in certain types of very complicated games. And I think these are the vast majority of people. Like there's 20 year olds running around right now who can't operate an FPS. And you say, that's not true. Anyone who's 20, they grew up with games. They must know. Not everyone plays games, you know, or maybe they just played Angry Birds and Tetris and Bejeweled. Uh, or even Tetris is a little bit more complicated than that. Like maybe they just played touch-based games. Maybe they have, you know, they just haven't developed these skills for whatever reason. And if you try to teach them to it, Either they won't be able to learn or they won't be motivated to learn because it seems like this is just like work. Why do I want to do that? I'm just going to go play Angry Birds. That's what I like better. Right. And I think this is the vast majority of people who play games. So these people without the skills that we gamers think are the essential gaming skills. Now, this is not a value judgment like, oh, those people aren't real gamers or whatever, or they can't appreciate games. I think it is great. The games have spread out to everybody and and uh, we can all enjoy these things. But it does mean that there's something weird about gaming where the connoisseurs of the very best that gaming has to offer that we believe is the very best that gaming has to offer there's a barrier to entry that has to do with skill i guess maybe sports is kind of like that but it's not because like i don't know like in baseball you know we're not all professional baseball players but we can hit a ball we can run around the bases even if we stink we can still appreciate the fun of baseball right but you can absolutely not appreciate the fun of a first person shooter if you can't tell where anything is or how to move like, it's like playing baseball and saying, I don't know which direction to face. I can't find home plate. After I hit the ball, what do I do? I try to run and I just move vertically into the sky. <laughs> you know, it's we don't have that kind of problem in, in physical real world things. But a lot of the very best games are like that. Now, the, the reaction of the gaming world to that, even the hardcore gaming world, has been to, ve- to develop games that de-emphasize skill. That sounds like, again, this all sounds like a value judgment. Where I'm saying, oh, that's not real gaming. It's bad. It's not bad. It is what it is. It's. They, we want to make games where if you put in the time, in other words, if you do the experience, if you sit down and watch every movie ever made, if you go on wine tasting things every weekend, you will eventually be, be able to appreciate wine more, right? You will eventually be able to appreciate film more if you study art and go to a museum. So if you, if you play our game, just time investment, it's not a skill thing. It's not like you have to develop some sort of skill to do this. Just, to, just by putting in time, we will reward you. And they do that by basically making, making the traditional skills of a gamer less important. Uh, and everything's relative, of course. So I'm going to talk about World of Warcraft as an example of that. World of Warcraft is a pretty hardcore gamer type game, but it does definitely de-emphasize skill in favor of uh, time spent, or at least the types of skills that that are have to do with like hand-eye coordination and spatial awareness and stuff like that and move more towards strategy type skills. If you put in the time in World of Warcraft, your character levels up, right? If you do the things that the game wants you to do, your character levels up. Your character becomes more powerful without you getting better at playing the game. More or less. Your one hit does more damage when you're level 60 than it does when you're level 1. And it's not because you are better at hitting. It's because your in-game character is better at hitting. And that type of leveling system where time investment equals power in the game, not proportional to your physical skills or even your strategy or anything like that, that makes a game accessible to more people. And if World of Warcraft wasn't like that, they wouldn't have whatever umpteen million subscribers they have because there just simply aren't umpteen million people who can have fun playing with each other if skill is the thing that is determining that. An example of that would be like Quake 3 Arena or, or any first-person shooter that is that has few empowering items other than your coordination. You can't go on a Quake 3 Arena server at this point and play and have fun because everybody who's on that server 
is really, really good at first-person shooter games, and you will die instantly. And the community of people who have that kind of skill is really, really small. Even when Quake 3 Arena was popular, you just can't get, like, how many, I don't know how many people are playing World of Warcraft, like, you know, 10 million or whatever. You you cannot find 10 million people who can play a competitive first-person shooter against each other and have fun at the same time. Right. It, because they won't have fun. Like, the good people will dominate everybody, everyone else will be sad, and they'll quickly start <laughs> segregating, and, you know... It, and so, even in first-person shooters like you know Call of Duty: Modern Warfare and everything, they either add leveling or uh, simplify the game so that you can get you know uh, the hand-eye coordination and spatial awareness and the ability to you know jump up in the air and flip around backwards and shoot somebody are less important, or that people with those skills can't dominate the game as much. Halo is a good example. There were people who are amazingly good at Halo, even with those stupid controllers instead of a mouse, right? But they didn't totally unbalance the game for everybody. And this is built into game design now. If you want to make a game very popular, you can't make it basically hard to play because you are limiting your audience to people who have the skill. And yet, there is, a, there is this phenomenon that, that I think exists where the very best games require not amazing skill, but some certain minimum amount of skill. And that pains me to think that, like, for example, I could never have uh, my mother play Journey which I think she would really enjoy that game. But I know she wouldn't actually enjoy it because she would spend all her time trying to figure out how to control the dude <laughs> and knowing where she is and what you're supposed to do and just the language. I mean, half of that is experience because she doesn't, she doesn't know the language of game design. Like, she doesn't... There's, there's a language, just like the language of film. There's a language that games speak to you in to let you know what the next thing to do is. And anyone who has played games for a long time recognizes that is a type of power-up or that is clearly where I'm supposed to go or they're not... You know, like... Gamers sit down in front of a game and there's a two-way conversation where the game is speaking to them, they're speaking to the game, and it flows. And the best type of games are the games that talk to the people with the vast experience in games so you don't have to spell stuff out, right? Uh, so that's experience, and you can get that by playing lots of games. But the skill one is like, what if there's a section of the game that she just isn't doesn't have the coordination to figure out which direction she's facing or she's flipping through the air? Like, dramatic, exciting things happen in the game, and if she's spending the whole time going, where am I? I don't understand what's going on. Then she's not playing the game anymore. She's out of the game and she's frustrated and like, you know, if you can't make a jump or something like that and you're just stuck in this part because you can't make some simple jump, it's frustrating as a gamer to go, oh, just give me the control. Look, see, I did the jump. But she's out of the experience. She's not playing the game anymore. And that doesn't happen that much with movies where you just sit there and look at the screen. You know what I mean? Uh, so this phenomenon happens at every level. Obviously, the, wor the world of workout level is like, those are still the hardcore gamers. But even within hardcore gamers, if you want to get the biggest audience you can, you have to de-emphasize skill. And then there's Angry Birds where anybody can play. You just flick the thing, you do one little motion, and it's engaging your mind, and it's engaging other parts of you, and it's a, a game that's trying to appeal to as many people as possible, but gamers would say there are games that are that we think that, that offer the very best that gaming has to offer that you just simply can't experience. And this also ties into the whole idea of games as art. That's why it's frustrating to argue with anybody about that because it's like if you're not a gamer and don't have that experience and skill, you can't experience our art at the level we would like to express about it. So that's why when like Roger Ebert was talking about uh, games are an art, and people said, "Oh, you really need to play, you know, Eco or Shadow of the Colossus or you know, Flower or I'm sure they would say Journey." Now, then you'll see that games are art. No, he wouldn't. He would not be able to play those games at all. They would be ridiculous, frustrating experiences. He would never get to experience the game at all, and he would not be convinced by it because he doesn't have the experience, and I think probably because he also doesn't have the skills. And that's that's weird. A kind of art that you need a certain amount of skills to appreciate, not just experience, but also skills. That I, I find that weird, and it 
it makes me uncomfortable with the entire situation and, and Apple being the king of that new kind of gaming doesn't really help or hurt or anything. It's just, it, it reminded me of this topic. Someone in the chat room is saying it does happen with film. There are already films that normal people wouldn't get. That's true, but it's not because of like a skill. I think if you watched a whole bunch of arty films, you watched the entire history of Italian or French cinema, or you watched every Japanese horror movie, then you could fully appreciate the next Japanese horror movie. And it's not because you had any particular skill. You are not now better at watching. Now I really know how to open my eyes really wide. <laughs> you know, it's not like watching, you know, it's it's more of a mental than a physical. When I say skill, I'm thinking of a physical thing. Like it's it's a combination. It's a combination mental and physical. Again, doing stuff with your body to make things happen on a screen in ways that are just not natural to a lot of people. And I and if you don't spend your childhood becoming acclimated to that and getting good at it, there are some things you just can't experience and appreciate. Is there another analogy? Is playing sports and then later watching them, like if you're a retired baseball player and then you watch watch baseball, do you appreciate it? I would say you do appreciate it more. Yeah, that's an experience thing. Like, yeah. uh, it, because if you just if you just watch baseball games from the time you were born and you have no idea how to play baseball, you watch enough baseball games, you come to appreciate the sport of baseball. That's just an experience thing. Experience is definitely a factor, but it's not a skill thing. Again, you're not getting better at watching. And you may have no idea how to play baseball, but you can still experience it. And there are sports like uh, tennis is my example where or golf was probably a good one. If you don't, if you have never played golf, I think it's harder for you to appreciate golf, but you don't have to be good at golf. Like if you have never played tennis, I can imagine a tennis match being boring, boring to you because you don't know how hard it is or what's involved in the game. So that gives you an appreciation of it. But your appreciation of tennis does not scale with your skill in tennis. Like once you've played tennis a little bit and you kind of appreciate the sport, then you can watch Wimbledon and totally appreciate everything there is to appreciate about that uh, based on, you know, just watching it. Or like if you watch Wimbledon every single year, and you will come to eventually appreciate tennis. You don't have to say, ah, I would have enjoyed that match much more if I had a much better forehand. No, it's not. That's not their relationship. Or like I tried to watch it, but my eyes were deflected from the screen because my <laughs> forehand is terrible. <laughs> that's what it's like in gaming where it's like, well, this is an awesome game. And you spend all your time trying to do the first jump. You're never going to get to the game. You're going to be frustrated for reasons that the game maker didn't intend. It's just going to bounce off of you, you know, and that's. That's upsetting. Uh, Ehead says now, of course, you can just buy game accomplishments via in-app purchases. Yeah, that's that's the final frontier of like not only no skills required, but we realize the time is a commodity too. And if you pay us, you can skip the time portion. Well, so it's an equal. We it's a great that? equalizer for people like like me, who's an adult. I have I have some money I could spend. Yeah. I have way more money than I have time to invest in a game. So therefore, I'll just buy these couple upgrades, and I'll I'll be my guy will be as good as. The 14-year-old kid who doesn't have money but does have lots of time and skill that I don't have and will never have. I, I think that's kind of lessening the experience. Like, that you're not... I don't know. Like, I think there are places for that. I think it's okay to have those type of purchases, but it's so easy for developers to slip onto the dark side there. Where now, like, it's taking advantage of a weakness in human perception that they, people will make that trade-off uh, is they've already bought the game and they really and they're competitive and they want to win and they'll give money and eventually you realize like what are you doing here are you having fun or now you're just dump, dumping money in here to try to be better like like the ability to buy the correct move in words with friends or whatever <laughs> right right like then what are you doing at that point like, why are you playing, playing the game or are you just like why not just just sit at home and tear your money up and throw it and throw it into a fire right and just sit there contentedly knowing that you're better than your friend because as you tear your dollar bills up and drop them into the incinerator so that is a difficult balance and 
I tend to like if you, if you don't have the skills or time to play a particular game to the point where you enjoy it, then don't play that game. Pick a different game that fits your stuff better. Uh, because I think it's going to be very hard for these massive corporations that make these million dollar games to resist taking advantage of you and eventually getting you into a situation where you're paying for things that are not producing more fun for you, but are just producing more revenue for the people involved. All right, we, we've got a, a kind of a third sponsor to do. All right, I got one thing about Valve after that. Yeah, well, I got to ask you about Valve. I was hoping you were going to... Uh, I don't know if it's the same thing, but I would have to assume it is. But anyway, so the uh, last thing I'm going to tell you about this week is very cool. Uh, it's the One More Thing Conference uh, in Melbourne, Australia. It takes place May 25th through 26th. It is a uh, conference for iOS developers and designers, but it's not a traditional one. You're not going to go there and like learn, uh, you know, certain method calls that will, you know, it's not, you're not going to walk out of there at learning things that will make you a better developer or a better designer. That's not, that's, you're not going to do it. It's much bigger than that. You're not going to learn some, you know, we're talking about skills. You're not going to learn some kind of development skill. You're going to learn things that you can only learn about iOS development, about development in general, and about business that you would only learn from people like Lauren Brichter, the guy that made Tweety that Twitter acquired from uh, guys like Nevin Mergen from panic, uh, from, uh, people who built train yard, people who built uh, flipboard. These, these are the people who will be there to talk and you'll be able to talk to them and hear what they have to tell you. You'll be able to hear what they have to say about their experiences. Not, Oh, I use this thing to make a two pain contraption. Not none of that. That's not what this is about. This is about sharing stories and information and advice from people who have done it, from people who have gone big. So if, if you are looking for a reason to go to Australia, Melbourne, Australia, this is, this is a pretty darn good reason. So check this out, onemorething.com.au. It's where you go to find out about it. And they have uh, the regular main conference. They've got little mini conferences, but it's Friday the 25th and uh, Saturday the 26th of May. Be a great conference. Go check those guys out. Do you know they have spiders in Australia that eat snakes? Ugh. <laughs> Someone in the chat room posted that this morning. Someone from it's Australia. And it's just the don't, worst. Don't don't let that keep you away from the conference. I'm pretty sure that the One More Thing conference will not have snake-eating spiders in it. So. <sighs> Camera Plus guy, Carl Von Rando. Right. Camera Plus. He'll be Valve. Valve. So there's this rumor out there that Gabe Newell recently said was not true. The rumor was that Tim Cook was at the Valve offices for mysterious purposes. And Gabe Newell went on, I guess he went on a podcast. Do we have, was it, is that out yet? Anyway, he denied it. Absolutely not. We are, he was not here. Is this what you're hopefully going to talk about? Yeah, so I what I linked to... And by the way, was, you and you joined me for an episode of The Conversation to talk to Gabe Newell. I did. And uh, did you put that in the show notes? No, I didn't. <laughs> Why I'll not? Add, I'll add it. I'll, I'll add it right now. So what I did put in was a link to uh, Dalrymple's site, uh, loopinside.com. Because I didn't want it to link directly to the rumors, and the same reason that he didn't want it to link to them. It's like, I almost can't bring myself to link to this, but here it is. So I'm linking to him, 
and he will give you what I think is the proper mindset and then follow that link to go to the links about these rumors uh, of him going there. The reason that I put this in here is because, well, a couple of reasons. One, Valve is kind of the hardcore gamer type of company. They, they cut their teeth doing games back when gamers really were a minor subset of people. They make these kind of arty games that people are really go gaga over. People who are in my gaming set like Portal. Uh, and even things like Half-Life, like, oh, it's not just a mindless shooter. There was an interesting premise and story and uh, done in a nice way. And people say, well, Half-Life, that's that's mass market, isn't it? Yeah, if you can play a first-person shooter, it's mass market. But there's no there's whole groups of people. I know I can never sit them down in front of Half-Life 2. They would never appreciate the experience because they'll spend the whole time fighting with the controls because they don't know how a first-person shooter works. Or if they do, as soon as they got up to the first hard fight, even on easy mode, they wouldn't be able to make it through and the game doesn't exist for them anymore. So that's the kind of company Valve is. And them talking to Apple, rumored or otherwise, right, the idea that Apple and Valve would combine forces, that's kind of weird because you're like, well, so Apple is the king of the new world of gaming, which involves, you know, casual games, games that don't require these skills that so many people don't have, you know, opening up the world of gaming to for people to enjoy games who don't have either the experience skills or both. Like, they didn't spend their childhood playing games. They don't have these skills, and yet they can appreciate games. Them combining forces with Valve, which is, for the most part, in the other direction. They make games for hardcore gamers, for people who are experienced games. They're, uh, you know, they, they do sell more casual games, but that's more of, like, you know, their innovation and distribution type of platform. So that, that's an area where I think Apple and Valve do match up. Valve made Steam, Apple made the App Store. So they can have a kind of a meeting of minds there. Of like, yeah, we did that thing where we distribute stuff directly to customers digitally too, and it's awesome, and we get a cut of it, and blah, blah, blah. But on the gaming front, Angry Birds is pretty darn far away from Portal or Half-Life 2. It was like, you know, the flagship franchise, or Team Fortress, or anything. These are the, ha- these are the flagship franchises of Valve. Uh, so why the heck would Valve be talking to Apple? Or why would anyone make up that rumor if it's not true? What Does that make any sense in any possible way? And the thing I thought of was, a story from the Penny Arcade Report, which is Penny Arcade's new gaming news website run by Ben Kuchera, the former editor of Opposable Thumbs, which is the gaming section of Ars Technica. He's over there on his lonesome, running the whole site by himself and doing a great job. Uh, and I put a link to this interview we had with Gabe Newell. Very long interview, which is basically transcribed so you get to hear uh, exactly what Gabe had to say. And he, he talks a lot. And one of the more interesting aspects that has come up a few times is Valve talking about hardware, like gaming hardware, which seems weird. It's like, you know, no, that probably doesn't, you think of Valve, they make software and they have the Steam store, but they don't make gaming hardware. Like they don't even make PCs or anything like that. They forget about like a gaming console. What do you mean hardware? And so here's what uh, Gabe Newell had to say. There's a quoting from him from the article. After talking about hardware and stuff for a while, he says, well, if we have to sell hardware, we will. We have no reason to believe we're any good at it. It's more like we think we need to continue to have innovation. And if the only way to get these kinds of projects started is by us going and developing and selling the hardware directly, then that's what we'll do. It's definitely not the first thought that crosses our mind. We'd rather the hardware people that are good at manufacturing and distributing hardware do that. We think it's important enough that if what we end up having to do, then that's what we end up having to do. So he's basically saying that he thinks there are innovations in the world of gaming involving like wearable computing or different kinds of input devices or whatever they, you know, he's vague about it, but whatever they're talking about is that if they have to make that hardware themselves, they'll do it, but they really don't want to make that hardware themselves because they're not a hardware maker. But at the same time, he's saying like uh, valve as a company, we don't want to be held back by like, Oh, wouldn't it be great if, Oh, well that would require some hardware and we have no means to do that. And this reminds me of Apple and that like 
lots of ideas that Apple has had. Like, you know, we could have a digital music player and it would have all these songs on it. It'd be connected up to a digital store and they'd be like, oh, well, but we don't have a digital store and we have no relationship with music makers. Oh, I guess we can't make that. Apple says, no, it's a good idea. We're going to go start having relationships with music labels. We're going to convince them for them to give us our music. We're going to start a music store. We're going to make this hardware device. We're going to put software on it. We're going to make iTunes and we're going to ship all out and we're going to have digital music. And Valve is the same type of company where it's like, you know, just because it sounds crazy, like Steam, you know, we make games. Why would we make a store that sells games? Are you saying we would sell other people's games through our store? What are we? Are we a game company? Are we trying to be like a retailer? This sounds dumb. No, they just did it. They thought it was a good idea. They did it. And now you have Steam, which doesn't just sell Valve's games. It sells lots of people's games and customers like it. And it was a good idea. So here they are talking about hardware and saying the same thing. But at the same time, also saying we recognize we're not a hardware company. We really have no idea how to make hardware. If we have to do it. We will. But and now here's me inserting. Well, if Apple is rumored to be talking to them or, you know, even if they never talk to them, but the fact that, that rumor even exists, it's kind of like a, co- a combination of like, well, Valve says something about hardware and Apple makes cool hardware. Wouldn't it be cool if Valve and Apple got together and made some sort of Apple gaming console that played Valve software library and that connected your iOS device to your TV and all sorts of crazy fantasy scenarios coming up. None of which, by the way, I think is particularly likely. But that combination of like contrasting Valve and Apple, I find very interesting. And the, the final link I put on my show notes about this that I think I encourage people to read is a uh, blog post from Valve employee Michael Abrash. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I've been reading his name for decades, but I don't know how to pronounce it. He is a longtime well-known game developing guru who's written many technical books on development. You may know him from his uh, participation in the effort to create Quake and if you were a gaming ba- gamer back then, you know the significance of Quake and how it was a breakthrough in 3D gaming and blah, blah. He was instrumental in that. He's written many books on hardcore game programming for performance on older PCs and has continued to hone those skills. He works at Valve now, and he wrote a long blog post saying, here's me, here's where I started my life in, in the world of gaming and technology, and here's how I ended up at Valve. It's a very, very long post. And he says how he ended up at Valve, and then describes what Valve is like as a company, which I've read bits and pieces of before, but this is the biggest kind of like, I work at Valve and here's what it's really like to work here. It is not like a normal company. I would actually encourage, I should send this link to Merlin, that you should have a back to work episode about how Valve is structured internally in a company and how it is wildly different from the way other companies are, uh, are constructed. Very flat hierarchy, very little command and control, just almost, almost anarchy, even more so than Google. But a lot of people have heard a lot about Google. And then at the very end of this thing, he says, and I'm currently working on wearable computing. And if you would like to come work at Valve and you think all this stuff is interesting, we're looking for people. So come on down. So it's basically the world's longest job posting. Like Usually it's a wanted person with this experience, these bullet points, five years in this degree and this experience with blah, 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 apply here. This is like everything else at Valve. It's not your normal thing. So this link will be in the show notes. Read it and think about how... What that would be like if a company like that, company like Valve, you know Valve's products, hopefully, you know that they have Steam and everything, and then you read about how this company is structured internally, got together in any possible way with Apple, how would that even work? Would the two repel each other like like poles on a magnet? Is there no way they could ever work together? Or could they actually partner to produce something, anything that is useful or significant? I think it's fun to turn over in our minds, even though I lend almost no credence to any of these rumors. 
I like the combination, the confluence of events with Gabe Newell talking about hardware and wearable computing and all of us talking about how Apple is the new king of gaming, but doesn't have any real connection with actual gamers or self-identified gamers. The meeting of those two companies could either cause a huge explosion or produce something very interesting or just never happen. That's the boring alternative. So that's all I had to say about that. Are you optimistic, Kearney, the, the, the possibility of any partnership between these two companies? Well, I think it would be very interesting. And obviously, in, in that kind of meeting, you would think that Apple would come in as the stronger company, kind of say, if, if something like this were to happen, you could imagine Apple coming in and saying, well, we'd, we're, we want to move into this space, and we like what you guys have done here, and but what would it be? What would the proposal look like from Apple? Because you imagine Apple would be the one proposing, right? Why would Apple be proposing anything, though? You know, Apple is not big on partnering. <laughs> They're not a big company. Maybe like, the yeah, proposal is a, is a purchase. Yeah, you know, I don't think Valve would ever sell. But like, that's what I'm trying to think of. That's why I was saying like polls uh, repelling each other. Yeah. Because they're so, like, Valve doesn't think it needs Apple for anything. Right. Apple probably doesn't need, think it needs Valve for anything. It's just us looking on the outside like, no, Apple, you, you're this new king of gaming. You fell <laughs> right. ass backwards into gaming. and but, but you're not, you know, you don't know us gamers. But Valve does know us gamers. Talk to them about it, right? So we on the outside want to get these two crazy kids together to do, produce something. But Apple's like, we don't need you. We're selling a million games. We don't really care about games or whatever. They're just other apps. Go away. And Valve was like, we want to make cool games. Maybe Valve would be like, if we want to make some sort of hardware, maybe they would approach Apple and say, We've got this idea for hardware, and Apple will go, yeah, that's great. And all yeah, that. they're not doing that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we're not a hardware manufacturer. You know, it's not like the only wild card in this isn't in, in the post Steve Job era. I feel like I know what Steve would say to all these proposals, but there is this real or perceived pressure that after Jobs is gone, at a certain point, Apple's going to have to come up with the next big thing without Jobs. So Jobs did the iMac, which doesn't seem like a big thing, but it was. Uh, people can debate me about that in email. Uh, the iPod, which sure as hell was a big thing. The iPhone, I think also inarguably a big thing. And the iPad, that's a hell of a lot of big things. Oh, and by the way, the original Mac and the Apple II, right? And so what's the next big thing? Is this, is this the Apple TV that we keep talking about rumors? Maybe it is, I don't know. But the, at a certain point, five years, 10 years from now, people are going to go, yeah, the, Apple did all these great things, but the iPad was the last one. Or but that TV thing was the last one. And they, what have they done for me lately? Right. And so maybe Tim Cook feels that kind of pressure to start putting out feelers for what the next big thing is, because Jobs would just decide what the hell he thought the next big thing was. You know, he would be influenced by other people who talked to him, but he would say, you know what, I think we should do a phone. Let's figure that out. And they'd come up with a damn phone. Well, someone's got to be making that decision at Apple now going, what about games? Like, can we just like look into that? So maybe Apple would talk to them. And maybe that is, you know, not what Steve Jobs would do. If he decided they wanted to do a game thing, they'd do a game thing. They wouldn't talk to Valve. Forget Valve, you know, they're going to crush Valve, whatever. Uh, but I still don't think Apple's into gaming, and I don't think they need think they need Valve, and the only reason Valve would contact Apple is maybe to try to put out feelers for their weird hardware experiments, but I think they would be rebuffed. So like I said, I don't, I don't think any of this is really happening, uh, but I, I think those two companies could have things to offer each other, even if they don't think they do. I think we'll end it there because okay. I, don't want, I don't want to talk about the new Gmail UI. I'll save that for next week. <laughs> and and Instagram, which I still haven't talked about. Teasers for next week. Tune in next week. Same bat time. 
<laughs> so people can follow you. You use Twitter still. I do. Syra, uh, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A on Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin. On Twitter, you can hear previous episodes of this show by going to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical. If there's a specific show that you want to see, you just add the number to the end, slash 64. We'll take you to this show where we have all the show notes that John has carefully curated over the last week, organized, curated, ordered, all there for you. And thanks very much to the helpspot.com guys for making that possible. They make some amazing help desk software. So thanks to them. And uh, that's it, John, right? Anything else? Anything else you want to add? I think you've got it all. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Have a great week.